The whole experience for musicians of playing in different settings for chamber music makes it possible to have these kind of cross-generational relationships musically and professionally and friendships that endure in different settings. Uh, so the, these music festivals are really a very special occurrence, and I think the audience can feel that. That's world-renowned clarinetist David Schifrin, who is back to talk about the upcoming Phoenix Chamber Music Festival beginning this weekend. There are many opportunities and concerts for you to see David Schifrin, the Dover Quartet, and students and alumni of Curtis Institute. I'm Melissa Green. Welcome to another episode of Heart of the Arts. Thank you so much for joining us here in the Valley for our Heart of the Arts feature. You're the founder and artistic director of Phoenix Chamber Music Festival that has grown from three days of concerts to six days. So firstly, congrats on all of your success over the last 14 years. Thank you very much. It's uh, always a pleasure to come to Phoenix for, for the music and to be in paradise in March. Yes, it's the perfect time and you've got a lot of um, amazing concerts planned. So what was, why did you start this festival? I know you've worked with so many great ensembles and orchestras and you've been an advocate for 20th and 21st century music and young artists and new composers. Well, I became involved in programming chamber music quite a few years ago with a festival that I began at, at the uh, University of Michigan when I was on the faculty there and then became involved with Chamber Music Northwest in Portland, Oregon, and then subsequently the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center and have done a lot of touring with, with various groups, and especially for a number of years uh, with the Lincoln Center group. And one of the regular stops was in Phoenix for the Phoenix Chamber Music Society. And I got to be friends with Janet Green and some of the supporters of the Chamber Music Society, the Phoenix Chamber Music Society. And um, I, I just remember thinking, being on tour there, what a great audience it is and what a wonderful place it is, especially in the winter. <laughs> yes. Uh, I tried to convince some of them that what they needed was a residency, a repertory company for a festival every year during the winter months. Yes. And to my delight, they agreed. And we started with a few concerts with um, some of the regular musicians who had played in various groups on the series and on the Lincoln Center tours. Uh, the Kavafian sisters and Henry McDermott and uh, Peter Wiley. We started playing, what did you just say earlier, three or four concerts? Yeah, you started then, with three and it's grown to six days. Yeah, at least. And then um, we decided to try to have the concerts in, in really interesting locations. We always do one in the venue that is the uh, regular venue for the Chamber Music Society, sometimes more than one, but we've been all over town and, and it's so much fun to to bring chamber music to really interesting locations, notably the uh, Musical Instrument Museum, the Botanical Gardens, and um, it, it underscores how many interesting and beautiful places there are in Phoenix and how adaptable and portable the art form of chamber music is. It's a chance to hear great music and, and experience 
the music differently in 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 these different beautiful locations. I mean, that's kind of going back to some of the, you know, the first ways that this music was consumed. So the festival begins March 3rd, and a couple shows have sold out already, which uh, the first concert. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how um, you're bringing members and alumni of Curtis Institute um, and also featuring the Dover Quartet in residency because they kind of appear throughout the festival. It's this repertory company format that allows us to do both existing ensembles, to partner with other organizations, and to have individuals in unusual pairings and to do repertoire that you wouldn't normally see on tour things as unusual as a quartet for uh, clarinet, horn, cello, and snare drum by Martineau, Mm. and uh, to some standard repertoire like the uh, uh, Mozart viola quintets and the uh, the Mendelssohn octet for two string quartets, and it gives us a chance to to pair musicians in, in different settings, to have the Dover Quartet in their new configuration perform with their emeritus violist as a quintet to have Milena Paharo van der Stadt come back and play with the Dover Quartet that she is a former member of and to have the Dover Quartet pair with with people like the great Suvin Kim violinist who will be with us on the Curtis tour for a different program but it gives us a chance to ha- to feature artists in different settings even during the course of the one week that they're they're in Phoenix, and yes. um, it gives us a chance to to partner with with various institutions as well, um, ensembles like the Dover Quartet, but um, an unusual project like the one we have with the Curtis Institute is it's really fun to bring a set touring project that that Curtis on tour is doing and to augment it with 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 other repertoire. For instance, um, the Soldier's Tale of, of Igor Stravinsky is it, it's already a classic. People mm-hmm. think of it as modern music, but it was premiered 105 years ago. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's a chance for us to present something that that is a mixture of of art forms that has uh, drama and spoken word as well as as the music, and then to build on that with the unusual combination of instruments. Stravinsky's uh, Soldier's Tale was written as a Turing piece uh, in Europe at the time of great change in in Western civilization. And and the piece really reflects that. It also, uh, it reflects the, the, the sentiment of, of wartime Europe during the First World War. The, the sense of exile that Stravinsky felt because he was living in France and Switzerland uh, in exile from Russia during the First World War. And it, it also shows the change that was happening in the world in, in the styles and of music. And um, you hear a, a really big jazz influence in this, in this piece by Stravinsky. Um, in a sense, it's almost like a jazz combo that's held together with a percussion, you know, like like a drum set uh, that Stravinsky builds on with pairs of instruments, high and low, 
that could almost be associated with with a jazz combo. You have a, a trumpet and a trombone. You have a clarinet and a bassoon, which you could also extrapolate to be like a jazz clarinet and a saxophone. And you have a a, a bass, a double bass, which is a standard instrument in, in jazz, and a violin, which was much more common in jazz back at the, the early part of the 20th century. And um, you have this language, this musical language of Stravinsky's that is, is absolutely unique, but it was definitely influenced by all the things that were going on in the world around him. And so we build programs around that and use the instruments uh, that are in the different groups in the Dover Quartet, the individuals that are going to be there, members of the Phoenix Symphony and faculty members from uh, Arizona State to, to form new ensembles to play pieces that are really quite unique and, and don't have their own touring ensembles the way a string quartet might mm-hmm. uh, during this week-long festival. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you also have Stravinsky that appears on the with the ASU uh, Cultural Center in the Dover Quartet. Stravinsky appears on that, on that program on March 8th. So that's a little over a week away. And that's that's the botanical brass. Uh, yeah, at, that's at the sure. Botanical Gardens. We're doing Stravinsky's really amazing octet, one of his great masterpieces that that also incorporates jazz and modernism and has the unusual instrumentation of two trumpets, two trombones, two bassoons, one flute and one clarinet, and it's it's the only major work that I am familiar with for that unusual instrumentation, and it's truly a masterwork that Stravinsky said came to him in a dream, and he woke up and wrote it down. Mm. So what um, makes it difficult, if anything, because you say it's this unusual combination of instruments. Is it the blending of the instruments and, uh, you know, how how the different volumes are going to blend together. How, how does the ensemble have to work together to produce the best sound? Well, you ask really good questions. <laughs> when we come together in a repertory company like this, as you point out, it's not like a group that is together all the time and rehearses um, regularly with the same people. But we do have cells, the kind of groups of people that are accustomed to working with one another and who are who are very familiar with the repertoire, working with sometimes people that they've never worked with before. But we bring people together who have the skills, the chamber music skills to listen, to try to match um, articulations and styles. And um, we have a very intense week. Uh, besides all the concerts, um, much more of our time is spent in preparing those concerts. So we have rehearsal schedules that go from first thing in the morning all day long and sometimes a short break before we have a concert. And part of the uh, balancing act that is my job, assisted by Graham Johnson, who who was a wonderful clarinetist and has helped me with the rehearsal schedule and such, and with the logistic support of, of Janet Green and the Chamber Music Society, we have a schedule that, it, it, I, the analogy that I keep thinking of is, is the air traffic controllers, just to make sure <laughs> everybody's in the right place at the right time. Yes. And that we have a chance to, to rehearse the works that that need it the most 
Um, uh, and sometimes the festival starts long before we all get to Phoenix. For instance, the Curtis on tour group mm-hmm. met a couple of weeks ago in Philadelphia and rehearsed for two solid days with uh, all the repertoire that, that these players are going to do, along with the actor John Delancey to, to do the narration for Stravinsky's Soldier's Tale. And then we'll rehearse for several more, more days in Phoenix, and I try to organize the programs so that the pieces actually that need the most rehearsal are a few days into the festival, so we have a chance for those who haven't worked together before to to match their styles and uh, really learn together and how to play with one another, especially when we have instruments, like I said, in the Stravinsky, but also in and much of the other repertoire that that are diverse instruments, mixing winds and strings, and sometimes percussion. We yeah. make sounds in different ways, and we have to find ways to um, take advantage of the diversity of the sounds we're making, while at the same time make it sound like we're playing the same piece and match articulations <laughs> and lengths of notes and intensity and volume, as you pointed out earlier. So there's a lot that goes on in those rehearsals. Yeah. And the Curtis on tour that's happening at the Musical Instrument Museum on the 10th, of course, have you'll you'll be performing. Um, John Delancey, like you mentioned, will uh, is on that program and then students of the Curtis Institute. So are you bringing contemporary music to this program? Any new composers or um, artists that our listeners should keep an ear out for? Well, absolutely. Uh, the other um, veteran virtuoso is the mm-hmm. violinist Suvin Kim, mm-hmm. who, who like myself, is is an alum alumni of uh, of the Curtis Institute, and um, will be playing with five current students. And a student at the Curtis Institute of Music is 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 really a young professional performer who is learning repertoire and polishing their craft. It's 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 not like playing with five students. They're, they're incredible virtuoso young artists. So um, Curtis on tour was designed to to provide opportunities for the students to work with veterans, either faculty members. Or, or alumni like like Suvin and myself. And in the case of uh, our, our narrator, John Delancey, with a, a world-famous actor who has a very close tie with Curtis in that his father, J- John Delancey, also um, was the director of the Curtis Institute for several years. And he, he was uh, the principal oboist in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And when I was a student, he taught the uh, wind chamber music class every week. So mm. our narrator's father was my teacher for four years oh, at, yeah. at school. So we have all of these um, wonderful connections. And, and um, the whole experience for musicians of playing in different settings for chamber music makes it possible to have these kind of cross-generational um, relationships musically and professionally and friendships that endure in different settings. Uh, so the, these music festivals are really a very special occurrence. And I think the audience can feel that and hear that in, in the concerts that, that we present.
Yeah, especially you kind of bringing them, like you said, into all of these beautiful locations. Has the, I guess, the uh, level of commitment changed in you or some of these performers or students that you've seen that maybe didn't have a chance to put themselves out there over as much over the last couple of years? Oh, my goodness. Everybody's so excited to be performing in, in person, in public, and touring, and, and going back to almost what we uh, began to feel was normal. And in the case of of these young artists from the Curtis Institute, my goodness, they were just getting started when yeah. everything shut down. So right. this is, it's a real celebration for all of us, but I think a particularly important opportunity for the for the young artists. Yeah, yeah. I've talked to a lot of um, musicians and, you know, big performers like uh, violinist Hilary Hahn, who just kind of say it's kind of like a layer. Also was... a Curtis graduate. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you know, this kind of layer that she didn't know was there was kind of shed. And she started performing with this kind of like whole new wall of sound, this like wall of projection that wasn't there before. Indeed. Well, good, good, good for Hillary. Um, so, uh, like you mentioned, John Delancey, his father was the uh, oboe teacher, your oboe teacher, and um, uh, no, he wasn't. He, I played his, the clarinet, but he was he was he taught all of the woodwind te- uh, students at Curtis in in chamber music ensembles. Okay, it was I a chamber at Curtis. Delancey was, you said, the well-known actor. Uh, Janet told me to mention that he was Q in Star Trek. And I'm not Indeed. a Trekkie, but what will, <laughs> what can you tell us about that or for Trekkies who, would, who wouldn't know and recognize him as that character? Well, I think any Trekkie would recognize <laughs> him. The, the story that I asked him about was one where... Um, for some reason, they break into uh, costume and 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 form a, an interstellar mariachi band. And there he was playing the trumpet. And I asked him <laughs> about that. And he said he never he never played a note in his life. But it was, it was they were improvising. He said, and said, it must have been a lot of fun to be in outer space and be, and be from another galaxy and improvise yes. and and have it all come together on screen. Yes. And uh, so like you mentioned, he'll be narrating in The Soldier's Tale, which is on the final concert of the festival. And um, just to go back again a little bit about Stravinsky, I trying to remember back when I was in college and stuff and, and learning a little bit about this piece and how he, how he absorbed jazz music. I was once told that he was only able, because of like where he was, because of what was going on politically, that he was only able to see the sheet music. He wasn't actually always hearing and absorbing it. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I've read that as well, but I don't really know that that's 100% the case, because mm. there are also stories about how um, he had heard uh, the clarinetist, the great jazz clarinetist, Sidney Bechet, in, in jazz clubs in Paris. And, and that kind of influenced some of the music he wrote around around the time of World War One, And um, so I think he had some of that sound in, in his mind as well. Mm. But it was a brand new art form and he probably couldn't have heard very much. Mm-hmm. But 
um, the, the conductor who premiered a lot of Stravinsky's great music from the early 20th century was uh, Ernest Anserme, who was the music director of the uh, Swiss Romand Orchestra, the radio orchestra in Geneva. Mm. And he and Stravinsky were good friends, and it was documented that Anserme had heard this jazz clarinetist, uh, Sidney Bechet, in clubs in Paris, and recommended that Stravinsky go go clubbing and and hear mm -hmm. him and I, and I think uh it's also been recorded that 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 influenced some of Stravinsky's writing around that time as well mm -hmm. including a uh, a solo clarinet piece that he wrote uh and dedicated to a man named uh Werner Reinhardt who was the uh the commissioner of of the uh you know who paid Stravinsky to write The Soldier's Tale, was an amateur clarinetist. Uh, so Stravinsky heard Sidney Bechet in the jazz club, and that influenced how he wrote for the clarinet and how he en envisioned some of those jazz forms in, in The Soldier's Tale. So I think there was some listening and a lot of score study as well. And you recently had um, produced an arrangement of um, some pieces for clarinet chamber music by Duke Ellington about two uh, years back. Can you talk a little bit about that and any other projects you're currently working on? Sure. Well, full disclosure on that is one of my favorite composers, arrangers, and authors is a good friend named David Schiff who is no relation, and it's not even <laughs> exactly the same name, but we're good friends. And he is the arranger, and I, I was the performer <laughs> with, the, mm. with the string quartet of um, a number of um, works by Duke Ellington that originally featured great, great clarinetists of the 20th century, like Jimmy Hamilton and uh, Barney Bagard. And then he also arranged a whole suite of pieces that Benny Goodman made famous with his sextet and uh, also for, for clarinet and string quartet. And that that kind of kind of bridged a divide between what, what's usually thought of as a solid wall between jazz and classical music and to have the same ensemble that Mozart wrote his, his quintet for used mm -hmm. to play uh, Duke Ellington's music and, and uh, and to play uh, things like sing, sing, sing with a swing <laughs> with clarinet and string quartet and, and uh, Ellington's uh, air-conditioned jungle and clarinet lament. It was really a thrill for me. And, and uh, another shout out to David Schiff, the composer arranger who, who really made it work uh, as, a, as an ensemble. Of course, we're not doing those this time uh, at the festival, but um, uh, there's there are recordings of the Ellington arrangements that we made with the Dover Quartet, and right. uh, those are readily accessible, and I'm sure we'll do some of these again. I think we yeah. did the Benny Goodman ones with the Miro Quartet at the festival last year. Mm, okay. Yeah, you'll have to do that for um, the 15th season. Have you started making plans for the 15th season since that's kind of like a little landmark? We have. We have. And we've got some really exciting things lined up that range from an amazing uh, string sextet from, from Curtis on tour to some of my colleagues here at Yale University and and uh, and colleagues who were some of the founders of the festival, Ani and Ida Kavafian and Peter Wiley and Steve Tenenbaum will, will be there. Mm -hmm. um, 
Tim Cobb, the principal bass player from the from the New York Philharmonic, and uh, the wind faculty from Yale University, where I teach, uh, will be playing uh, uh, one of the great masterpieces of chamber music, is Schubert's Octet, which is not heard often enough because it's an unusual instrumentation of five strings and three winds. But we'll be mm -hmm. doing that at our festival and um, lots of other interesting things that I'll uh, that we'll announce along the way during the year. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, it's sounding like a great lineup so far. And in addition to what we're already looking forward to, I had one other question before my wrap up question that just kind of popped in my head talking about jazz and classical and Stravinsky and everything. I've been having conversations with a few educators here and it kind of most recently has been relating to Baroque music. But since you have all of this experience at these prestigious schools, I'm curious how much improvisation was taught to you before the college level and during, as opposed to where sometimes in my experience, it was either, you know, you're studying jazz or you're reading mu classical music and what was on the page. How was your education and how do you see it now in terms of students getting kind of that well-rounded education, that knowledge of improvisation that's really important from really the, you know, the Baroque era up to, you know, Stravinsky and music today? Well, that, again, is a wonderful question. And the, the answer to your initial question is not enough. <laughs> right. Like, like how much training, when I was a student, classical musicians learned what was on the page and and the appropriate style to to play them, but not, not a lot of improvisation. That was usually extracurricular if you were going to play some jazz or or dare to ornament uh in in baroque repertoire or classical repertoire and as a clarinetist i didn't get to do enough baroque music until i until i started playing transcriptions because the clarinet was not in existence really until yeah. very very late baroque and early classical so there's no real repertoire of bach or handel uh mm -hmm. but in in the recent years i've i've shed any inhibitions about uh stealing other instruments repertoire <laughs> and and it's it's so much fun to experiment with ornamentation and and um, to realize that improvisation in that manner didn't didn't begin with jazz that mm -hmm. that it was and and you must be referring to historic uh, practices that that the great composers were often great performers who would perform and recompose as they were performing by <laughs> improvisation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so it's with great humility when when we take a great masterpiece and then improvise on it or ornament that I think it, it's wonderful, but but to approach it with a, cer a certain uh, respect. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a whole other 
conversation and, and argument in some cases, which is always fascinating to think about. Lots of great stuff. This is such a beautiful program. I'm looking forward to uh, the Stravinsky for sure, Botanical Brass with Gabrielli and Stravinsky and uh, Martin New. I, I would also like to wrap up with, I always find it interesting. I think our listeners do too. What do you love about Phoenix? You know, you've You've been here uh, many times. Do you have any any staples besides the the perfect weather? For, for me personally, I have some uh, some favorite golf courses. And mm-hmm. uh, when if we have a rare afternoon opening of a few hours to to go to, go to a baseball game and some great restaurants uh, and just to view this otherworldly landscape that is so different from the East Coast where I grew up. (laughs) Yes. Well, that's excellent. Mr. Schifrin, we're so excited to have you on the airwaves here in the Valley. Congrats on two sold out concerts already. And yeah, we look forward to the 14th season. Thanks so much for, for speaking with me and about the festival. Looking forward to it. That's renowned American clarinetist David Schifrin, who will be featured in the 14th season of the Chamber Music Society Festival, happening March 3rd through the 10th. There's two sold-out shows, but four opportunities for you to attend. You can find tickets and all the information at phoenixchambermusicsociety.org. For KBOX Heart of the Arts, I'm Melissa Green.